Welcome to Friday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live here on Giants.com, the mobile app and most podcast platforms. He's Paul Dottino. I'm Lance Meadow with you for the next 60 minutes as we'll discuss some of the latest headlines connected to the Giants and across the NFL. Later on, we'll discuss how an injury could impact the Giants' early season opponent as well as an interesting clause in the NFL rulebook. We'll also answer several of your submitted questions, so stay tuned for that. But we start with our opponent team previews. The Giants will host the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in Week 8 at MetLife Stadium on Monday Night Football. Last season, Tampa Bay went 7-9 and nine and finished tied for second to the NFC South. To break down the Bucs and what to expect from them in 2020, we're now joined by John Ledyard, who covers the team for a pewter report. John, you got Lance Meadow and Paul Dottino here on Giants.com's Big Blue Kickoff Live. Appreciate the time today. Hope you and yours are safe and healthy. How's everything on your end? Doing great, guys. Doing great. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Absolutely. Our pleasure having you on the program. And, John, let's not beat around the bush. Let's get right to the subject at hand here in terms of Tom Brady, by far the biggest development for the Bucks this offseason. And when I look at what Brady could do for the offense— I'm looking at it more in terms of ball security, John, and I'm curious your perspective. It goes without saying, Jameis Winston, 30 interceptions. They had 41 giveaways as a team. How much before Brady even steps on the field this season, is that an improvement in terms of helping the offense by protecting the football this season? Yeah, it's considerable. I mean, I think one of the biggest things when you watch Bucks tape from last season, I think the reason the nail in the coffin for Jameis Winston was that they felt like Around midseason, week 10 or so, the rest of the team took a turn for the better and they were held back in kind of a big push at the end of the season for maybe one of the last playoff spots or at least to be a serious contender for one of them. Uh, they were held back by James Winston and the mistakes that just he could not get away from. Them. So I think that is one of the biggest things when you look at it, kind of how the second half of that season unfolded in terms of them looking at their options in the offseason and saying, we need better ball security quarterback. That's huge for us. We have a good football team, and a football team with the arrow pointing up in a lot of ways, young and exciting, athletic on defense, you know, smart, physical, finally, for the first time in a long time, you know, tons of weapons on offense. We need a quarterback who's going to take care of the ball. So. I think Brady was like the hot, you know, was the like dream. And then, but I honestly believe they would have even, even though he's not even a scheme fit, but I think somebody like Teddy Bridgewater, just to be, even if they were going to be a more conservative offense in a lot of ways, I think they would have rather had that and relied a little bit more on their defense and their run game than they would have, um, than they would have gone back to Jameis and, and risked those turnovers. So it was huge for them, it was a huge focus of their offseason, and it's a big reason why. Brady's kind of like the dream out of that because they can still be aggressive on offense. Uh, don't have to neuter themselves at all in that way. And you know they're going to take better care of the football as well. I'd like to explore that a little bit, John, because we all remember when, when Hall of Fame quarterback Peyton Manning went from the Colts to the Broncos. And during that free agent dance that he did with a few teams, it was all about Peyton's going to bring his playbook to that team and they'll run his plays. Tom Brady's coming from the Pats, going to Bruce Arians, who has a very specific offense now with the Buccaneers. So how much of this is going to be a blend of Brady and Arians? How much is it going to be Brady? How much is it going to be Arians? What can we expect to see? I think you're going to see it be a lot of Arians' offense, but there's going to definitely be input from Tom Brady. And I think already they're kind of... They have a lot of similar things that they like to do and ways that they like to attack opponents. You know, everybody kind of always thinks, oh, Bruce Arians doesn't use tight ends, but I don't really think that's true. The Bucks last year were eighth in the NFL in terms of two tight end deployments, playing a lot of 12 personnel with two tight ends on the field. And, you know, the hours hurt. They didn't have Rob Gronkowski last year, and yet still 
they were rolling out two tight end sets a lot of the time, even if it was Anthony O'Claire out there. So Bruce loves to play with two tight end sets. Obviously, Brady made, you know, helped make 12 personnel kind of the, the, the fad that it is in today's NFL with two tight end sets and what he was able to do in New England consistently over the years. And now he's got one of those guys that he did a lot of damage with and Rob Gronkowski and a lot of shot plays come out of 12 personnel. And that's why Arians loves it, because he loves to be aggressive and take shots. You get 12 personnel out there on offense, two tight end sets. Defenses are more likely to be in their base. They roll a safety up when you flex your tight end. You've got single-eye coverages, means one-on-ones on the outside, less safety help for corners, and you take your shots. And that's where Mike Evans thrives. And so I think Brady loves loves a lot of the same things. New England's done a lot of the same things. Uh, I bet the Bucks operate heavy out of 12, maybe not quite as heavy as you guys know the Eagles did last year, over 50%, I think. But I bet they're you know, second or third in the league in 12 personnel. They take a lot of shots out of it around midfield. I think they work the seams with the tight ends, and they try and create mismatches, and those guys, Gronk and Howard, can run, and Gronk's one of the best seam runners ever, and that's an area of the field that Arians loves to attack, and where Brady's made a living with Gronk over the years. And so there's some a lot of kind of stuff that's going to merge really easily. Chris Godwin played heavy over 500 snaps in the slot last season. Brady's had a ton of success with slots in the short to intermediate game. So a lot of it's going to merge way more naturally than people think. I think people don't think the Bucs, you know, Brady doesn't throw the football down the field anymore. You know, the Bucs always throw the football down the field. That's sort of true, but I think a lot of it was Jameis four stuff down the field. He was actually a less accurate quarterback down the field than, than Tom Brady by like 4% percentile point last year and Brady still threw it at a league average he still threw beyond 20 yards right around 15th 16th in the NFL last season so it wasn't like he wasn't throwing deep and he was in an offense with no vertical threat so I think you are the Bucks. you got Mike Evans Chris Godwin Scotty Miller a lot of these guys that they have I think that he's going to throw it on the field just fine I think people are going to see that, that any arm strength concerns and things like that are pretty overblown John, I'm glad you brought up Brady's deep ball versus him getting rid of the ball relatively quickly because that was always his M.O. in New England. And you look at the numbers last season, Jameis was sacked 47 times. Now, as you well know, part of that is the quarterback holding on to the ball as opposed to the offensive line play. But the offensive line for the Bucks has certainly been called into question over the last few seasons. They drafted Tristan Wirfs in the first round. What do you make of this offensive line in being able to protect Brady and him being able to play off of this group? Yeah, I think that's the big question mark on offense. I mean, every other position group feels feels pretty great except for maybe running back. And, and you know, running backs, I think it's been proven that if you're average at that position and that's the you know the worst part of your roster, you're doing pretty okay. I think so. I don't think that's a huge deal, even if they are average. But the offensive line, that's a big deal. Uh, I think. What's happened quietly in Tampa Bay is Ali Marpet and Ryan Jackson, you know, their left guard and center, being two of the best interior offensive linemen in the NFL at their positions. You know, Marpet probably a top three or four guard in the league, or left guard for sure. Uh, and then uh, and center, Ryan Jensen, you know, maybe one of the best uh, based on some of the older guys not kind of falling off at the position league, kind of needing uh, a little bit of a revival at center. And he, he's been really – last season was – Brian Jensen was a dominant football player, and, and his first season in Tampa Bay was a little bit disappointing, so the new offensive system came in, and he really acclimated himself really well. Lead, leaders in the locker room, both of those guys, too, so those guys I think you feel really good about. Uh, Donovan Smith has went from a kind of average, below-average player to like a good, solid starter at left tackle. There's still really ugly moments at times. Uh, Brady has always survived with kind of average tackle play because he feels edge pressure so well. I think the interior spots are arguably more important for him, and so I think you have two of those nailed down. Alex Tapp on the right guard is an interesting situation because he was a bad player, I think, his rookie year. He was he was not very good at all. Then this past year, I think he reached like a league average 
average type of play, level of play, which is a big step in the right direction for a guy coming from Humboldt State. You knew there was going to be a learning curve. You weren't worried after the rough rookie season. Didn't play a ton either. And then this past season, he's a starter whole season, and, and he played you know pretty decent, I think. So can his arrow keep pointing up, or is this kind of who he is? He might be the weak link. And then worse, you know, I think you feel great about where you got him in a first-rounder, but Tackles take some time in the NFL usually, so I think you can expect some up and down from Wirfs, but the talent is there for him to be a really, really good football player. So it's the best offensive line, both talent-wise and I think execution-wise, that they'll have in a long time, um, but it's still not without some questions. Um, and, and obviously Brady's presence, like you said, helps alleviate that a lot more than, than, than Winston's would. So how it all works together remains to be seen. I feel good about it, but I don't think it's a unit without weakness either that's going to have their challenges as the season. John, you mentioned the functional running game. Now, Brady was used to running back by committee in New England. I mean, that's just what they ran for a long time. Uh, The rookie Keyshawn Vaughn, who comes in out of the third round, how much time will he take from Ronald Jones? Do you think there'll be more of a split, or is Jones going to be the primary guy? I think Jones will be the primary ball carrier where you will see competition happen is for third down reps or passing down reps. And in games where they get behind a lot more, you might see Vaughn a lot more if he proves himself. Now, Vaughn is not some dominant college receiver. He, he was solid in the role in college, you know, okay route runner. I don't think he's a, this great athlete that is, has this high ceiling. Um, to me, I thought it was a little bit of an overdraft. You don't want to overdraft running backs. I get there was a huge run on running backs that nobody saw between the Bucks second and the round pick and their third round pick. So uh, maybe they felt a little pressure to reach and get the top guy left uh, for them, even if I thought he could have been had. Uh, a little bit later, so uh, I think he competes, you know, for some for some reps, mainly as receiving, and like I said, games they get behind or games that look like they're going to be shootouts, you, you might see Vaughn a little more if he proves to be the better receiver, but Rojo has more upside, and, and you know, big leap again, like Kappa from his rookie to year to his second year was a big leap forward, the end of the second year I thought was his, he was playing his best football so far, so what you want to see so far, but you know, growth isn't always linear, so is, is it going to stop now at this point? Is, is Rojo going to keep getting better? Most running backs are pretty close to their ceiling when they get to the NFL. So I think you temper expectations for both of them. Uh, you hope one can emerge as a good receiver. Pass protection is really going to be the key, though, because Vaughn was just okay at pass protection in college. Jones hasn't really been the guy in that regard so far in the NFL. And Dario Gumbawale, who's probably their third-string running back right now, is their best pass protector. He's not great, but he's pretty good. Um, and so I think that he may get some reps, too. So it may be a real committee situation. But if there's a game where they're running in a lot, I would bet that Ronald Jones gets the bulk of those carries from, from week one to week 16. We're talking with John Ledyard, who covers the Bucks for Pew report and John you could also make the case that Brady has a lot of options to work with in terms of the receiving game you mentioned the tight ends we'll get to that in a second but I want to focus on the wide receivers it goes without saying you know what you're getting out of Chris Godwin and Mike Evans both over a thousand yards last year Godwin continues to break out each and every campaign but I'm intrigued by the third and fourth options first of all Tyler Johnson out of Minnesota I think is somebody that could add new dimensions you like what Justin Watson brings to the table and even Scott Miller. Out of those three, who do you look as somebody that could be that true consistent third option this season? Yeah, so being a little bit new to the scene for the Bucs, just starting to cover them and, and, and beginning of February, I was kind of, okay, I've seen a lot of Mike Evans, a lot of Chris Godwin, 
you know, and I, I'm going to eventually get to watching these guys that are on the roster right now, Scotty Miller and Justin Watson, but let's see who they draft first, how high they draft somebody. There was a little bit of talk that if all the tackles were gone, they could take Judy or Ruggs or uh, one of those guys, Lamb, in the first in the first round, which would have been pretty crazy. So it's kind of like a wait-and-see mode, and then they drafted Tyler Johnson, and I like Tyler Johnson a lot. You know, I had a late third-round grade on him. I thought that was a steal in the fifth round. It was my highest-ranked player left on the board, uh, period, any position, when the Bucks took him, so I was thrilled about that pick i think he's a great contested catch receiver which you wouldn't guess looking at his frame uh, but obviously that's something the bucks have uh, a trait that's in abundance right now and the receivers godwin and evans are two of the elite ball skills receivers in the league and gronkowski's obviously probably redefined ball skills for tight ends with how good he's been so they have a lot of that trait on the field which makes me wonder, you know, that combined with the rookie learning curve this year going to be a little bit tough, I think, based on the practice time that, that they're going to miss and, and so on and so forth. I wonder if Scotty Miller or Justin Watson are in a better position to be that guy week one in 11 personnel that's out there as the third receiver. And when it comes down to those two, I look for who has a dominant trait that you can lean on even in a decoy-like role that's going to test and offer defenses a little bit more to think about. To me, that's Scotty Miller. You know, Watson's an okay player. I, I think he's fine uh, as a depth receiver, good guy you like to have for sure. But Scotty Miller's got four three six speed. Uh, he's got 13 catches last year, and some of them were some doozies. I mean, he made some really nice plays last year, uh, and that was his rookie season. And I think you know, Watson said two years, and I think he's behind, behind Miller right now. So tough for him to make up that ground. My guess is week one rolls around. Scotty Miller's your your other receiver. I don't think he's necessarily just a slot, although he's 5'9". I think they're going to use some stack releases and get him open as an outside receiver. Happened at times last season, so you have to be careful how you deploy him, I think. But he brings an element in the speed and, and some of the catches that he made last season, too, that Watson can't bring to the table when Johnson may have some time catching up to speed on the offense. You know, Arians has always kind of been a little bit tough on rookies, so uh, I think your best bet is Scotty Miller this season and Tyler Johnson long-term will, will be that year 11, guys. We had mentioned tight ends earlier in terms of Gronk and O.J. Howard. Howard, who, by the way, in my mind, has still not totally blossomed into the guy who we thought he was going to be when he came into the league. But I'm interested in Gronk because, you know, we know he's badly banged up. We know he took some time off. But, you know, when, when Witten did that in Dallas and came back after a year retirement, he still put up 60-plus catches. So, John, I'm wondering, what is realistic for Gronk this year coming back to try to play with Tom again? Yeah, I, I think what I've continued to say about Gronk is that there's obviously a level of unknown that, like, you know, none of us can really – we can just speculate. We don't know. I mean, a guy takes a year off of football – uh, if he looks like he's in great shape, he moves great. Uh, and from the practice, little practice tape and the aerial shots we've seen, you know that's about it. Like I don't, we don't know a whole lot else in terms of you know he could fall off a cliff. I think it's unlikely. But one thing we can say about Gronk is that we've never, from his rookie season to the time he retired, uh, even 2018, which he was banged up and wasn't himself for sure. We've never seen him as not one of the best players in the league at his position. I mean, he has yeah. always been at that level. So. Based on that huge sample size of his career, I just have a hard time <laughs> believing that he's going to come back and even be league average. I, mean, I think he's going to be he's going to be really good. I'm just going to be honest. I think I don't think you forget how to play football. I think he's going to be really good. It's healthy. It's staying healthy. That's going to be the key. But he fits in the offense so well. And I think that everybody's talking about the Brady Arians. You know, is that fit going to happen? Well, Gronk is like the dream tight end because he's been the best vertical tight end, not just, you know, like a Jason Witten, like we were talking about, who's a good player, but more of a short to intermediate guy. Gronk has been, you know, 16 yards per catch tight end for his whole career. And that's like Arians' dream at the position to have a player like that. So 
I just think that matchup is that marriage is perfect. Now it's about whether he can stay on the field and what kind of a snap load he can he can handle. John, I want to switch gears to the defensive side of the ball. And as we started off the conversation, I think the defense was certainly put in a precarious spot more often than not last season because of field position as a result of all the offensive turnovers. But Shaq Barrett, 19 and a half sacks, led the NFL in that category. They give him the franchise tag. They bring back JPP. They certainly have some big boys up front. What do you look at this defense heading into 2020 as to whether or not it could truly build off of some of the positive flashes that Todd Bowles and company showcased late last year? Yeah, I think that's one of the most encouraging things when you said like late last year how much the young talent came along, especially a cornerback. You know, I think that was the big question mark. Bucks have not had good cornerback play for ages. I mean, it feels like since the Ronnie Barber days. I mean, <laughs> you know, Brent Grimes at the end of his career. You know, it's just not... They just have not had good defensive back play, period. And so how well Jamel Dean, Sean Murphy, Bunting, and Carlton Davis eventually played together was basically going to dictate how good that unit would be for the next three to five years because they drafted all those guys third round or higher, and so those are those are their guys. That's their future. Uh, and you can throw Anthony Stewart in that mix, too, although he's fallen well behind those three. You know, and he could be on the bubble this season even. But I think those three, when they finally got on the field, they got they benched Anthony Stewart, they got rid of Vernon Hargraves, they cut him. And then I think at that point, when it became those three, Sean Murphy, Bunting, and and Carlton Davis playing on the outside at base, and then Murphy Bunting would kick to the slot, and Dean would come out and play the other outside cornerback spot. Uh, toward the second half of the season, you know, last six, seven games, and they played really well. I mean, certainly there are rookies ups and downs, and they played some tough competition. They played Atlanta twice in that stretch, you know, and Julio and Alvin Ridley stretched them, but there were great reps against those guys. You know, Dean got lit up by Seattle, and then I think at that, after that, you know, it was kind of like, hair on fire, playing out of his mind. He was one of the best corners in the league. He pro football focuses rankings, really anybody's rankings, tons of plays on the ball, a couple picks. So Dean looked like a future star in an admittedly very small sample size of like five or six games. Davis looks like a solid number two corner. Uh, some limitations that will probably always be there, but a gamer, physical, aggressive, plays every snap hard. And Murphy Bunting, how does he play in the slot? He was an outside receiver or outside corner in college, so that transition I think it was sticky at times for him last year. So how does he kind of handle those reps when you're a nickel most of the time? And he's going to have to be their slot guy because they don't have like a true slot corner. How most people think of the position, he's kind of like a big slot corner. So, uh, but again, another tough guy who tackles like crazy and is always coming up, coming forward to, to get guys on the ground. So I think the biggest thing is toughness and aggressiveness at the cornerback position. They haven't had that in forever. They were a soft defense under Mike Smith. They're not soft anymore. How the safety play handles this season is huge. You know, Antoine Winfield was a huge draft pick because the safety play was the weakest link on the defense all year last year, whether it was uh, Whitehead or, or Andrew Adams, you know, being kind of a stopgap guy but not making a ton of plays. Uh, you know, I thought Mike Edwards had struggled as a rookie, which you expect, but can he bounce back? And, you know, does Justin Evans ever come back from injury or is his career kind of over? The foot injuries that he's had has kind of really derailed things. He's missed the last season and a half. And, you know, Winfield, the rookie. So a lot of potential in the safety group. You could have a great top three, potentially, but there's a lot of question marks, too. So that's the unit, I think, to really watch. I wonder how sure the Bucks are, though, John, about getting to the quarterback. And let me just tell you why I say that. Because Shaq Barrett, up until the last year when he had 19 and a half sacks to, to lead the world, he was nothing more than a part-time journeyman in Denver for five years. And if you go by length of resume like you did with Gronk, length of the resume on Shaq Barrett says he might have been a one-hit wonder. And then JPP 
has only played 16 games three times in his career. And I'll be honest with you, as, as his time dwindled down with the Giants and he wound up getting traded to Tampa Bay, he was not the same guy who helped the Giants win a Super Bowl. Right. Yeah, I think they're fair concerns. You know, I wrote about Shaq Barrett and Jason Pierre-Paul just this past week over at PewReport.com. And, you know, my observation for Shaq Barrett was this. I think it's fair to assume that he will not contend or be the league leader in sacks again in his career. I also think that watching his tape, it is crazy to me that Denver just kind of let this guy go and felt the need to use the fifth overall pick on the same position, you know, over and over. And he just kind of <laughs> snug Barrett. So I think he, I think he is, a, I think it's fair to say, he probably won't get 19 and a half sacks again, but I think he also is a, is a really good player. I really do. And I came in kind of more the ones that you're saying, like, I don't know if we can really count on Barrett to do this again. I don't, I'm sure I would give him, you know, the bag in terms of paying him as it was, he was a free agent and, and they tagged him and it looks like he might end up playing on the tag. We'll see kind of how those talks unfold as July 15th approaches. So I think it's a smart approach by the Bucks. But it, my biggest reason for optimism with Shaq Barrett is that he has multiple ways to beat you as a pass rusher. It's not like this guy ran around and got hustle sacks all year. Like, he beat guys one-on-one. He destroyed Nate Solder when they played. I mean, you guys saw that game, you know, up close. Like, that was a four-no doubt. And I think for him, like, that was – and obviously Solder's had his struggles, you know. But then Carolina the next week, he's taking apart Darren Williams. Later in the season, like, he's taking apart Jake Matthews and Caleb McGarry in Atlanta. Two games, you know, he dominated Atlanta. 18 pressures in those games. And so – I, I think with Barrett, you have a player that's really good and going to keep coming, and he's going to get a lot of opportunities to rush the passer because they don't have any depth at the position. You mentioned Jason Pierre-Paul. He's a guy his last two full seasons, he's playing, you know, one of them was in New York, playing 89 or 92% of the snaps over those two seasons. Like, he's, he's playing a ton of snaps, but he's had these weird off-field injuries, right? And you're right, he didn't look like the same player toward the end of his time in New York. There's been a resurgence in Tampa Bay that has been hard to describe, especially after the car accident. You really kind of wondered, is he done? And then he misses the first half of the season. And then over the second half of the season, he, he just he was cranked all the way up. My concern is how quickly does a guy like him fall off at this point? Now, he's always been kind of a up-and-down player with production, and, and, and then the injuries have taken their toll. And we know he's an energizer bunny. He's, he's the leader in the locker room. Any player there will say, he is our guy. He is our leader. He's our rock. He's the guy. He changed the mentality. When he got back from injury, it was like, we're not going to get pushed around anymore. He was the demeanor change that happened over the second half of the season. But guys like him and Sue, you know, they, they, at this point, at some point they're going to start falling off, and they don't have any depth right now. So to me, the big concern with the Bucks that I would love to see him address if there's any money or availability to do it is defensive line depth. Let's get Jason Pierre-Paul off the field a little bit. Let's rest him. Let's keep him fresh and not ask him to play 90% of the snaps and, and get a third rusher in there that can you know allow Pierre-Paul to kick inside and rush where he's really good. But right now they don't have they don't have anybody who really I would look at and say, I want them on the field on passing downs at all. Like There's no option right now. Well, John, one way to help the pass rush is the second layer of that defense. And Devin White was their first-round pick in 2019. You used the term energy bunny. And this is a guy that really did a great job filling up the stat sheet last season, finished second in tackles. Where do you see his ceiling moving forward based on what he brought to the defense in just year one? Yeah, he is an exciting player. You know, I think linebackers are learning curves, sort of like quarterback on the other side of the ball. You know, you can come in and flash a bunch and make some hot. Like Devin Bush did the same thing in Pittsburgh. You know, I'm from around Pittsburgh, so yeah. I let Devin Bush. And it was kind of the same thing. It's like, 
you see all these flashes, you're like, man, there's not many linebackers who could have done that. But then there's just the consistency, you know, play to play, how quickly they recognize different blocking schemes, uh, the way teams line up. I think or it's just so cerebral that it just takes more reps to see it every single snap and become consistently good. So I, you know, White's rookie season to me was good as a run defender. Anything outside the box, he was humble. I mean, he made plays, he ran, he hit. Uh, guy doesn't quit on any play. I mean, he plays, again, mentality change was huge in Tampa Bay, and now they have guys like Sue and Pierre-Paul and Vea and Barrett and White, who as a front seven are all part of that culture change of physicality, toughness, you know, that they didn't have, frankly, under the Gerald McCoy kind of era with those guys. And so uh, that's been, a, he's been fit right in with that. Fully confident dude, leader, um, you know, communicates. So I think the, the arrow is hugely pointed up for Devin White. I think anybody would tell you that. Last year was an up-and-down rookie season like you'd expect, especially in coverage. There will be bumps in the road this season, too. He's not going to be Levante David or better than Levante David this season, and that's okay. You know, I think by year three, you'd love to see him start moving closer to hitting his peak and becoming like a very good player in the NFL. Hard to say exactly how that learning curve happens, but the most encouraging thing from White Staples, you saw no limitations in terms of this might hold him back forever. Like he plays fast, he plays free, he is smooth, he can he can move just great and hit and tackle and finish, and he rushes the passer. He can do it all. It's just a matter of can he technically and mentally get where he needs to be to make it a snap-to-snap thing? Right now, it's just flashes. Yeah, you mentioned that, and I'm interested in that last comment there, John, because I think when he came out of LSU, one of the doubts that I had about him was he just seemed to be a little bit too sloppy, a little too ragged, that he missed tackles that he should have been making. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that completely. I think that, you know, I had Devin Bush a little bit higher than him. I love both of them, you know, potentials through the roof. But I agree with you. Like, I, I, you know, out of college, White was a fully confident player, who overran some things at times, who was a little bit slow to recognize things at times from the neck up and then missed some tackles at times, too. And you'll get missed tackles at linebacker. You know, that's a position that, that sees a lot of tackle opportunities. Uh, so by default, you'll have some misses for sure. Um, but I think at the same time, you know, that you love the physicality, the mentality, and the high-end reps. Now it's a matter of making it more consistent. I, you know, we only really saw, got to see a lot of it for one year at LSU, and then one year as a rookie in the NFL, he certainly didn't look out of place. So, you know, how, how much he continues to become consistent is going to determine how valuable he is. What makes Levante David great isn't, you know, any one thing that he does. It's that consistently, no matter what yeah. the Bucks ask him to do, he has been a great, I mean, an elite player for years there. And so that's where Devin White's going to have to try to get to. And I think he's got a great group around him to, to help him get there. John, last one for me. I think special teams, it's fair to say, has been somewhat of an Achilles heel, specifically the kicking game for the Bucks in previous years. Now, they did draft Matt Gay last season out of the fifth round. How much have they put those kicking issues behind them based on what occurred with Gay last season? And how much is that maybe no longer a part of the team that could very well come back to bite them or hold them back? Yeah, it's a fair question. I mean, you know, beginning of the season, Gay really looked like he was going to be the answer. And then the last five weeks or so, I can't remember exact number of games, but some questions creeped up. And I was like, okay, how, you know, how much can we really say we want to count on this guy in clutch moments? He missed a bunch of extra points in one game, missed some field goals down the stretch. December was just a rough month for him in general. You have that a kicker, but it's such a mental position. You know, it's it's not really. I don't know enough about the position to say, "Oh, he has this technical flaw, and if he fixes that, you know, he's good." <laughs> uh, I think it's mostly, you know, just kind of a it hit a wall, and that's what Bruce Arians thinks. And 
they'll have competition for him in camp, no doubt. But I think they have a lot of faith that he's. I think they would be very surprised if he didn't win the job. Um, but because it's such a mental position, you know how how, how you know how much can I say? You know he's going to be dynamite for them this season. You know he's an exhibited terror or something like that. Like that part's hard to say because I think all the talent is there. You know you want a guy that can make him from range. I think all that's there. I don't think that there's any concerns there with Gay. It's you know is he good enough? It's just like is he going to be like mentally? How much is that month of December going to stick with him? I watched in Pittsburgh. Chris Boswell had three or four great seasons, great seasons in Pittsburgh, one of the best kickers in the league. Then hit a wall and it was a disaster two years ago, and they've still brought in competition for him. Everybody was telling him to cut him. They brought in competition for him, and then this past year was one of the best kickers in the league again. You know, So it was kind of, you just never, you just never know. It's just such a unique position uh, because of the mental aspect of it that it's hard for us to even understand in our positions uh, how much that impacts things. And so uh, I think that's going to be the key for Gay. How mentally tough is he to bounce back from a tough December and if he's facing competition? And your coaches have said it's a competition. They haven't said, you know, it's not like he's going in knowing this is his job. He's got to be mentally tough and work through the adversity in camp. And I think if he does that, they'll, they'll feel like they're in a really good position uh, with him as their kicker week one. I don't think the thing is, is sure, though, on the return game, John. And let's not mistake it. It looks like that's going to be quite a competition here coming into the season. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think T.J. Logan really impressed them last year. Broke, I think it was dumb, if I remember correct. But he, I know Arians was really excited about what he saw from him and how he was improving. And so I think they have some hope there. He would be the fourth running back, and they would keep four in that regard unless Logan really shows out and they feel like they can. But more than likely, I think it's a team that's going to keep four running backs. The competition for him is probably, you know, maybe Scotty Miller will get some looks, but Raymond Colias, their, their seventh-round pick, will be another guy, return guy that's competition fast, but that's about it. So I don't know if he's going to make much of a dent as running back. Uh, so how he handles the return opportunities and special teams, the tackling and coverage and things like that will basically determine if he can beat out Logan and make the roster. I don't think Logan's the lock, but I think Kalias has worked to make the team as a seventh-round pick, especially with how little they've been. They've had so few opportunities to see him, abbreviated preseason. The opportunities are just so few and far between for those guys. So I think it's the, the chips are just kind of really – yeah, I think it's just everything's kind of stacked against Kalias uh, making the team, I think, especially considering Logan was really impressing them when he was healthy. So it has not been a team that has had a dynamic return unit for years. The Bucks have no. not had a ton of success as a return group. So I think they're excited to see what Logan can bring to the table, but certainly looks like it's kind of going to be a, a unit that has to get by rather than rely, be relied on for splash plays. He is John Ledyard, who covers the Bucks for Pewter Report. John, greatly appreciate the time and the insight. Hope you and yours can continue to stay safe and healthy and look forward to talking to you down the road. Thanks again. Appreciate it, John. Thanks. For sure. Always great talking to you guys. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks again to John Ledyard, who covers the Bucks for Pewter Report for breaking down Tampa Bay and what to expect from the Bucks in the upcoming season. And Paul, as we do after each of these team previews, let's give our reaction. And the big news is clearly the addition of Tom Brady. But I look at Tampa Bay through this lens. Last year, the offense was not the problem. You know, everybody points to Jameis Winston. They had one of the top offenses in the NFL. If you look at this team statistically, uh, they were up there in total offense. They actually were third in the NFL. They averaged nearly 400 yards per game. So the way I look at Tampa Bay is they were hit hard in terms of turnover differential. Minus 13, bottom five of the league. 
Brady, to me, the way he improves them before he even throws a football, he's not known for a high turnover rate. So this is how Tampa Bay improves on the offensive side of the ball. They're not looking to have a nosedive in terms of production. They're just looking to have better protection of the football, and I think they hit a home run with that by going from Winston to Brady. Well, we've talked about their offensive line a little bit earlier, and the bottom line here, Lance, is that Tristan Wirfs, who was expected to be their starting right tackle after being a first-round draft choice, is going to be a big part of whatever it is that Brady wants to do. We know that Donovan Smith is over at the left tackle spot, but that offensive line allowed Winston to get sacked over 45 times last season. And I know Brady will get rid of the ball quicker, but if that offensive line does not play significantly better, I'm going to disagree with you and say that Brady's going to have himself a tough time because that was always the key in New England, move Brady off of his spot. Well, he'll be moved off his spot a lot if the Bucks don't protect. Well, there are still question marks on the offensive line, I would agree with you, but even in years, Paul, to your point, when New England had issues in pass protection, Brady was never a high turnover guy. That's my point. So maybe they don't light it up every game, as you mentioned, that the offensive line has trouble, but they're certainly not going to be turning the ball over at the same rate that they did in 2019. That's Mm -hmm. my biggest emphasis because let's look at the numbers here. Tampa Bay was minus 13 in turnover differential. Tampa Bay had 28 takeaways, but Paul, They turned the ball over 41 times last season. Listen, I don't care how bad the offensive line is. Even if they struggle immensely, Tom Brady is not going to contribute to 30 interceptions, which accounted for the bulk of those 41 giveaways. Well, which is also where the safety net named Rob Gronkowski comes back into this conversation, doesn't it? Because that's the bailout when Brady's got trouble Instead of coughing the ball up with a poor throw like Winston would do, the ball's probably going to land in the hands of Gronk. And it's not just Gronk, by the way, that he has as that security blanket. O.J. Howard's not too bad either. Yeah, last time I checked, Cameron (laughs) Braid also is going to help the cause. Mm -hmm. Tampa Bay may have the best tight end depth chart in the NFL. Oh, my goodness, they do. I mean, it's almost criminal. Could they line up four tight ends on a given snap? They could very well. I would not be surprised (laughs) if that winds up happening. But this is the beauty for Brady and Bruce Arians and Byron Leftwich, their offensive coordinator, as you just alluded to. They can get very creative this season, Paul, with their formations because when you have that many options at the tight end position, I mean, you could have two guys line up and you don't even ask them to block You ask them both to run routes because all three of those guys that we named, what makes them so attractive is they can all serve as extra wide receivers within your offense. Well, and if not those guys, how about the rookie Tyler Johnson coming out of Minnesota who was expected to be a terrific possession receiver? You know, that guy gets picked in the fifth round in the draft, but he was one of those guys who people were saying he'll be like a third or fourth round pick, but he's going to give you a lot more value than where he was drafted. Yeah, I love that pick. A speedy guy, a vertical threat. You combine him with Chris Godwin and Mike Evans, who are clear, the top two wide receivers on their roster. But I also wouldn't overlook what I love about Tampa Bay is behind Godwin and Evans, you mentioned Tyler Johnson, but Scotty Miller is another attractive young wide receiver who was a sixth-round pick in 2019. And Justin Watson, who I covered very closely in the Ivy League, a fifth-round pick in 18, who also showed some flashes. And that's the thing about Tampa Bay. This is not a one- or two-player show. They go way beyond that. And Brady loves that. 
Because if you go back to his time in New England, Paul, he loved to spread the wealth. You never felt like you went into a game and you said, if he doesn't have this option, they're in trouble. Think about how many running backs are utilized. And also, sometimes it was Julian Edelman. Sometimes it was Danny Amendola. Sometimes it was Gronk. Sometimes it was a running back. That, to me, is going to be a very similar principle that's going to be preached in Tampa Bay this season. Well, ultimately, it comes down to Tom Brady's health, and it comes down to their offensive line. I, quite frankly, don't think the Bucks make the playoffs this year. Wow. But that's just me. You're that skeptical about the I Bucks absolutely, this season. I absolutely am. Tom, Tom Brady is old as uh, a number of my socks. And, uh, you know, quite frankly, uh, he's not going to be able to take 35, 40 sacks uh, like, uh, you know, the way Winston got battled around last season. So I don't think Brady will play 16 games. And Blaine Gabbert doesn't exactly, uh, you know, put any uh, uh, stars in the sky for me as far as the Buccaneers are concerned. And, again, I don't trust their offensive line. And you and I both know if the offensive line does not play well, you can spout out all the names you want. It will not make a difference. Well, once again, I agree with you that there are some question marks there. I also won't overlook the fact, though, despite Winston getting beat up and taking some sacks, they still once again put up nearly 400 yards of offense per game. So that, to me, is also and, oh, something they were seven that can't be dismissed. Teams. They were. They were 7-9, and nine, but hold on a minute, Paul. It wasn't as if they were losing games by 25 points. There were a lot of highly contested games last season. The problem is you turn the ball over four to five times a game. I don't care how good your offense is. You're putting your defense in a precarious spot, and you're going to wind up losing by a field goal here or there. And the Giants could certainly relate to that based on how their seasons have played out. So you protect the football. good? I think their defense has some upside. Last year, their defense really came together late in the season. Todd Bowles should not be overlooked. Shaq Barrett led the NFL in sacks. They gave him the franchise tag. They re-signed JPP. Devin White is a really good interior young linebacker. They've got Indomitian Sue and Vita Vea up front. Their secondary is my concern because they're young. A lot of guys from the 2018 and 19 draft, and they had a lot of injuries. Justin Evans tore his Achilles. So, yeah, there are a lot of question marks on the back end, but if if their front group gets after the quarterback, which Todd Bowles' defense has done, Paul, they're going to make up for some of the issues that you bring to the forefront, even if it becomes pass protection, question marks here or there on offense. They'd be happy to be a third-place team in the division. I'm with they're, you they're that not, New Orleans not, is certainly New a team to Atlanta watch out for. Be one, two. Okay, but... Wait, so who do you think is going to be second? You said, I'm sorry, I didn't hear New you. New Orleans and Atlanta will be one and two. See, and I don't think Atlanta is a lock for two. I don't understand how you could have more faith in Atlanta at this point than Tampa Bay. I don't see it that way. Well, if Blaine Gabbert has to play a bunch of games, you'll have faith well, but in, Paul, in you're also, games too. You're expressing the doomsday scenario for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. If you were to tell me that Blaine Gabbert is going to start a bulk of the games, yes, my outlook for Tampa Bay changes. But I have to look at you having your starting quarterback for the bulk of the season because I could say the same thing about Matt Ryan and their offensive line issues. And what about their rushing attack? They don't have Tevin Coleman. They don't have Devontae Freeman. I know they got Gurley, but Gurley's been banged up over the last year. It's not a Falcons preview show, so I'm not going to go into a whole dissertation on the Falcons. I'm simply telling you I don't believe in Tom Brady playing 16 games. I don't know how few games he will play, but I don't see him lasting. I don't see it, and that's going to be the death blow for the Bucs. They're not making the playoffs. Wow. Bold prediction here. 
very early in the month of June Mark before we start the 2020 campaign. Oh, I'm not marking it down. Mentally, I will remember this conversation. There you go. I will absolutely remember this conversation. I think the South has a lot of depth with the exception of Carolina, which is revamping some new faces, a new coaching staff, so you have to take that into consideration. But mm-hmm. Tampa Bay, to me, is right up there in conjunction with Atlanta battling for that number two spot. And if you were to ask me, I'd have New Orleans one and Tampa Bay two. And it wouldn't stun me if Tampa Bay surpasses New Orleans, depending on, of course, what plays out health-wise for all of these teams. You never okay. know. That's that, the wild you, card. You, you never do know. I'm just saying that I, I'd like my odds, and I'll go with it. Here's the other thing of why I would not rule out Tampa Bay. Keep in mind, you know, the turnover rate in the postseason, Paul, and we've had a lot of conversations. Mm-hmm. So to think that everybody that made the playoffs last year is locked to make it this year, highly unlikely that's going to happen. And you figure the coronavirus and the lack of on-field work is probably going to really spice things up. So that bodes well for a team like Tampa Bay because the Bucks were not a playoff team last year. I understand. I look at a team that was 7-9 and nine last year with major ball security issues. Tom Brady is good enough to me to take that team to 9-10 wins, and that is good enough to get you at least a wild card. I don't good think luck. that's a stretch. Good luck. Okay. Well, listen, I don't need the luck. I'm not <laughs> suited enough for them, but I will relay the message that you just mentioned here on Big Blue Kickoff Live Please do. to the Tampa Bay fan base as well as the team. Lance Meadow, Paul Dettino with you here on Friday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. So that's what to expect, or at least the outlook for the Bucks from our perspective. Let's move on to some NFL news and notes. And interestingly, Jeff and I previewed the Niners on Wednesday's program, and now we've got some San Francisco news. And this is, by the way, a bit of a side note, a concern that you and I have brought up on a variety of shows You just don't know whether the injury rate is going to skyrocket this offseason, Paul, because of the lack of on-field work. Well, here it is impacting the Niners before we even start training camp. And multiple reports circulating that Debo Samuel, who now is clearly their number one wideout Mm -hmm. because Emmanuel Sanders left in free agency to go to New Orleans, broken left foot. They say it's a Jones fracture. He is out for the estimated timeline three to four months. Now, the reason I bring that up is number one, that's a significant blow, at least on paper, to the Niners' depth chart. But if you want to play the game of, well, how could this very well impact the Giants, they play the Niners, Paul, week three, September 27th. So if you use that timeline, I'd say ideal scenario, Samuel could be back because mid-September is three to four months away. But if he doesn't get back by then, there's a chance he may not be ready for the Giants game. And also, all bets are off if the Niners decide to put him on injured reserve or the pup list. Because then you're talking about a minimum of anywhere from six to eight weeks that you have to be sidelined. Well, if this should come to pass, then Garoppolo is going to be looking heavily at Brandon Ayuk, their number one draft pick, who we were very high on coming out of college. But again, he's a rookie. And what kind of development curve is he going to have to endure, especially at that early stage of the season? And there's always George Kittle, (laughs) who 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 can catch an awful lot of passes and do damage. But I don't particularly like the Niners' running game. So this would be a significant blow to their offense, especially early in the season if he is not, not just able to play, but if he's rusty. I mean, let's just say he makes it back for a practice or two and then is thrown in there against the Giants. That's not a great scenario for San Francisco either. 
Well, I think right now the big test for the Niners is can some of those young guys fill in? And Brandon Ayuk, you're right. He's one of the young guys, but I'm also referring to Jalen Hurd, remember, was a pick last year. Very athletic player out of Baylor. He got hurt with a back injury, so Mm -hmm. they never really got to see what he could do. He's one of those young guys. Trent Taylor is another young option on their receiver depth chart. Kendrick Bourne and Dante Pettis. Once again, all of these guys... They're not proven commodities. Some of them have shown flashes. Some of them haven't even gotten on the field. If that group, Paul, produces, that's how all of a sudden you get over the hump. And remember, Shanahan's creative. He's not going to go into the season relying on one of those guys to be a savior. But I got to tell you, first you say you're not high on Tampa Bay. I'm also somewhat caught off guard by you not being high on this Niners rushing attack. Paul, we're talking about one of the best rushing attacks in the NFL last season. What don't you like about this group? Well, I look, I look at it right now, and you like Raheem Mostert? Yeah, I think he's more than suitable to be a productive back in this league. No doubt about it. Okay. Uh, there are many other running backs I'd rather have. Let's just put it that way. I didn't way. say I was putting him number one on the list, but you asked me, can I be productive? Would I feel good? Absolutely, I would. Well, you've, you've, and then, of course, you've got Tevin Coleman coming over from the Falcons. Okay. I'm not a huge fan. What about Jarek McKinnon also is on their roster, and he's expected to be back. How much is he going to play? We don't know. but We don't know. But the Niners don't rely on one back. See, no, they that's don't. what makes it an attractive no, they group. They, no, don't they don't rely on one guy. I'm still a traditionalist, and I, I, get I, it. Do, I do prefer, if not having a bell cow, I still prefer to have a lead back who I know I can count on, and I just don't see that with the 49ers. I'm, you know, quite frankly, Lance, you know, I, you know, I look at this team and, yeah, D- Dante Pettis is an interesting guy because I remember as a rookie he showed some flashes and he was a second-round pick, so he's legit. And he might be the favorite in my mind to take Samuel's spot if Samuel is not there. And it wouldn't surprise me if Pettis makes some big plays against the Giants and people are like, well, where would he come from? Uh, the kid can play. So, so that would be a concern. But... Uh, no, I'm. Uh, it's to me, it's it's a methodical running game. It's not. It's not spectacular. Well, it was pretty damn impressive last season. It was productive. <laughs> last time I checked. No, no, productive. <laughs> yeah, productive. But that's, that's all you that's need. Spectacular. Well, because they use, like I said, a variety of different guys. And keep in mind, I get it. You like the one main guy being the go-to option, but also what happens is when you have that philosophy and that guy gets hurt. Then all of a sudden, there's a significant drop-off. And remember, the two teams that made the Super Bowl last year, Paul, were all running backs by committee. Kansas City no, didn't rely right. on one guy either. You're absolutely right. I, I, can't, I can't dispute that. And the fact that as, as a team, they ran for over 2,000 yards, yeah. and they were in the top five in the league, the, the facts speak for themselves. They had guys step in into the lineup and play significant steps in a rotating basis and on a week-to-week basis, and they did enough to get the job done. I just wonder if they can do that two years in a row. Well, one guy that got the job done for a team in the AFC is safety Jamal Adams, and that brings us to another nugget from NFL circles, and that is the fact that there are multiple reports that Adams has told the Jets he wants a trade. This is not necessarily a new story because he had made it very clear, Paul, over the last few months that he wants a new contract, but now, according to reports, the formality of perhaps he went to the team and demanded a trade. And the reason I bring him up is it's just interesting because Adams is part of that 2017 draft class. 
And there were two other safeties that year that were taken in the first round. Malik Hooker was taken by the Colts, and the Colts did not pick up the option for Hooker. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, Jabril Peppers, who the Browns drafted, is now a member of the Giants. And the Giants, two months ago, picked up his option. So the reason I bring that up is sometimes you know when it comes to quarterbacks, wide receivers, teams don't always, Paul, have the itch to set the market. They sort of want to wait to see how the market plays out. And I wonder if the Jets' thinking is, do we see what happens with the safety market as opposed to hammer out a contract right now? I think that may be perhaps part of their rationale and thinking. Boy, I don't know, Lance, and I'll tell you why I'm not sure. Because Jamal Adams has been has been rather abrasive over the last couple of months with some of his comments about not being very happy. And, you know, there's one thing you and I both know about young teams. As you're trying to build and you're trying to, to have a renaissance, you don't want abrasiveness. You don't want guys, you know, with prickly steps in the locker room. It, I don't think it would necessarily shock me if they were deciding in their head already that this guy is not a good locker room chemistry guy for us. He's a, he's a bruised apple, and maybe it's it's more that than, than anything you're suggesting. Maybe they don't think he's going to wind up being a long-term Jet because if he's causing them problems now, how many more problems are ahead? Well, he's by far their best defensive player, Paul. Of course he And is. it's not even close. Of course he is. It is not close. But you're going to tell me you haven't seen teams trade their best player before? That's not unheard of. I'm with you there. But here's the other reason why, if I'm the Jets, I would entertain a trade, but it's going to take an unbelievable, and let me put that with a capital U, Paul, for me to even think about giving him up. Because you know my philosophy, when it comes to trading away proven commodities, the draft picks don't guarantee you the Mm -hmm. replacement, right? Because Mm -hmm. you're entering now the land of the unknown. And here's another factor. The Jets have all the leverage right now, Paul. Because they have him under their control for 2020 and 21, and then they could give him the franchise tag. That's one factor. Here's the other factor, and this is something that hasn't been brought up, and it relates to Dalvin Cook because the Vikings running back is in a similar circumstance. I don't know you saw the reports that he's threatening to hold out from mm-hmm. training camp. And there's no leverage. Well, but here's why. Here's the kicker. Here's why. Players like him and Jamal Adams have no leverage. And I think a lot of people are overlooking this. There's a new provision, Paul, that was added in the new CBA that any player that holds out during training camp loses in a crude season. Yes. Okay? So I've heard what that. player in their right mind is going to want to risk that losing a crude season. And that means, let me use Dalvin Cook as an example. Cook, unlike Adams, was not a first-round pick. So that means Cook does not get a team option as part of his contract. He becomes a free agent after this season. If Cook decided to hold out from the Vikings in training camp, he would lose an accrued season, and then he would lose becoming an unrestricted free agent. That means, Paul, he'd become a restricted free agent after this season, and that means the Vikings then can extend a tender and they would have more leverage in holding on to him. He doesn't have as much freedom. So my point is the Jets know that. The Jets know deep down inside, Jamal Adams is not going to hold out because of that reason. And also, Jamal Adams is not going to hold out for three straight seasons because the Jets still have him under their control. So when you take all of that into consideration, that's another reason why I also don't think the Jets are itching to give him a new deal. I, I don't blame you if you feel that way. Not at all. 
But it's also not about whether or not he's under control. It's also about is he going to be a prickly piece of abrasive sandpaper who is going to cause headache after headache after headache while he's around. Look, this is one of the reasons why the Giants picked up that option on Jabril Peppers. He's now signed through the 2021 season. And no matter what you think of his first year with the Giants, when I think he played okay, but I think they would certainly like him to play better, and I think there's more upside there. They figured, okay, let's pick up the option now. Hopefully he'll have a terrific season in 2020, and this way we've already got him locked up for 2021 at that one-year price, and we don't have to worry about dealing with any discontent that may slip in because we've got to worry about redoing a deal or getting another, another contract with the player. I agree with you, and that's why at the time I said it was a no-brainer for the Giants to pick up the option. Also, it wasn't a situation where it was putting a lot of stress on the salary cap. And he's a young player. He's still on the rookie contract. Last year was your first opportunity to see him up close and personal. And to your point, they want to see him build off of that. So that would be more of a reason why. Pick up the option once again, and then you keep your options open. And Peppers also still has some flexibility. So it's not as if they signed on the dotted line long term. It gives both sides an opportunity to still get a feel for one another. So I wasn't necessarily surprised, and I'm never surprised when a team picks up the option, especially if they feel there's upside with respect to that player. Now, speaking of rules and regulations, This brings us to another piece of information connected to the NFL. And we've had this conversation a lot on previous shows. I know you and Jeff got into it yesterday where everybody's wondering, due to the coronavirus, Paul, should there be conversations about roster flexibility? Meaning, if God forbid you lose a number of players at the last second, should you have more freedom to bring up guys from the practice squad or sign street free agents, whatever it may be? Well, interestingly... Albert Breer, who we had on Big Blue Kickoff Live a few weeks ago Mm -hmm. of Sports Illustrated, Monday morning quarterback, tweeted out the other day a part of the NFL rules and regulations, and this is definitely a hidden gem. I think that's the best way to describe it, Paul. And there is actually a clause, and this goes back to 2010, that the NFL and the PA agreed to, which is labeled contagious disease, and I am not making this up, and I want to read you before I get your reaction, Paul. Part one, under procedures for receiving limited roster exemptions, and it reads the following, quote, if a club has at least six players on its 53-player active-inactive list who are unable to participate in its next game as the result of confirmed or suspected cases of a contagious disease, it can receive roster exemptions for those players and elevate players from its own practice squad to replace them. A club can receive a maximum of eight exemptions under these circumstances. An outbreak of a contagious disease prior to a club's bye week is not considered an emergency situation and thus will not result in the club receiving these limited roster exemptions. End quote. That is a fascinating part of the NFL Rules and Regulations guidebook. And another example of how you need sometimes a year to study this, to find all of these inner workings. And to me, this is going to be something that I think the NFL is going to tap into. And I guarantee you, Paul, they're probably going to clarify it before the season even starts. Read number two on that list. There is another part to that rule which I find extremely valuable. 
Number two is, quote, the deadline for elevating a practice squad player pursuant to the above circumstances when, let's say, you have six guys that are inactive because of a contagious disease. It's going to be four hours prior to kickoff. Wow, so that means Sunday you can Mm -hmm. make some of these moves where you elevate about six to eight players from your practice squad. Yes, sir. And obviously, these rules were written in 2010. Somebody had a crystal ball. I wish they had informed the rest of the world that this could happen. (laughs) Yeah, who knew? Yeah, who knew? And I don't know if they knew the date it was going to happen. Uh, But what I will say is it is unbelievable that they not only put this clause in, but then part two to the clause, which also allows for the uh, legislation to activate those players. I mean, we always talk about 90 minutes before kickoff. All right, who's going to be inactive today? Well, here it is. They've already got the wording in there four hours before kickoff, so we got a 1 o'clock kickoff. Guess what, Lance? We're watching the team's website at, uh, well, that would be 9 o'clock in the morning, trying to figure out, okay, uh, let's see who's coming up from the practice squad because player X, Y, and Z tested positive for the uh, COVID on Saturday uh, afternoon. Yeah, or Saturday night, depending on when they test them before a game. Yeah. Absolutely. So this, to me, gives them a great deal of flexibility, and it makes 100% sense because if you're going to give a team flexibility, you want it to come from the practice squad. And this ties into, Paul, the reports that circulated a few days ago that it looks as if the NFL, at least at this point, is having conversations about going from 10 initially, then it went to 12 There was talk about then pushing that to 14, and now practice squad can go to 16 perhaps this season because of the need for some extra flexibility. So 16 players on the practice squad, and if you needed to call up five or six guys in a pinch, at least you feel you have a big enough pool to do that. Well, what I love about this whole thing, and and you'll recall that I've been a proponent of a concussion list for several years. Uh, This, in effect, a contagious disease list, if you will, is not going to force you to put a player on injured reserve and lose him for X number of weeks. You can put him on the contagious disease list and get a roster exemption without having to make a roster move. That's what I love about this list. And, you know, it's something that I believe they should be doing with the concussion list, much like Major League Baseball instituted this past year. But, hey, you know what? I guess we'll just take these things one at a time. Well, these are also extenuating circumstances, so I can understand for this you'd want that in place. My only issue with the concussion is the fact that you just don't want teams circumventing things you and can't. getting to the point... No, I understand. Well, because you would probably have independent people involved in terms of checking that off. And I get that. The concussion protocol is sanctioned by the league, so there's no shenanigans going on. I just, I'd feel a lot more comfortable in giving a roster exemption for a contagious disease than I would for a concussion. Because then you get to the point, where do you draw the line? What happens if somebody gets sick Saturday night and it has nothing to do with the coronavirus? Guy catches the flu. Or something. You know, where do you draw the line? People would be calling for there should be exemptions when all of a sudden last-minute things happen. 
So I think that, you know, there have to be more conversations, in my opinion, on that end before we get it to the concussion degree. But right now, based on these circumstances, I think this 100% makes sense. And I'm happy that perhaps the league is at least having that dialogue. Before we wrap up shop, let's take some time to answer some of your submitted questions. And once again, we appreciate everybody weighing in on that end. Continue to submit them. Giants.com slash podcast slash BBK questions. At Lance Meadow, one word, last name, M-E-D-O-W. He is at Giants. It's WFAN on Twitter. You can hit us up directly. So we've got a few to answer here on today's program. And the first one is in relation to, actually, NFL rules and regulations. It comes from Lorison in the UK. And he asks the following. What do you guys think of having players that you drafted count for 10% less against your cap? In a simple example, the player still gets $40 million dollars but team's cap hit is only $36 million. It rewards good GMs for drafting well and helps good organizations prosper, as well as meaning we get more of those Eli, Larry Fitzgerald type of players who become synonymous with just one team, which are becoming less and less frequent. Keep up the great work, and thanks for keeping me sane, he writes, during the lockdown over here in England. And we certainly appreciate you tuning in from overseas. So, interesting proposal in terms of having... Drafted players count for 10% less against your cap. Well, you know what the problem is, right? Because every team is going to have a different number of drafted players who maintain a roster spot. Therefore, there's going to be a problem because there's no equity there. You're going to have different numbers and different percentages which are going to require different amounts of money. So every team is now going to have a different salary cap. Now, I love his thought in principle because, again, it's going to allow teams to find a way to keep their homegrown players longer and limit player movement and mobility. I'm all for it. You know how I feel about free agency. You know how I feel about the salary cap. Keep these players and these teams together. That's what football's about. It's teamwork. It's unity. It's chemistry. It's cultivating players, maturing teams together. It's all about that. I'm not, I'm not a big fan of, of mul- multiple player movements every single offseason. But unfortunately, uh, the cap number being varied team by team because of how many guys they may have under these circumstances would probably get this uh, proposal thrown out in a heartbeat. Yeah, I'm with you. I think on principle, it's an intriguing proposition. The problem is the whole point of the salary cap is to have an even playing field. And if you start rewarding teams for drafting well, if you have 10 guys or 11 guys on your roster, Paul, that you drafted, you take 10% off of each one of them, you're going to be able to afford a few extra free agents, and all of a sudden the balance of power is going to be tilted. And I don't think the NFL wants that. So I don't think realistically this could be implemented. And here's the other thing. Right now, you are rewarded if you draft well, because then for that four- to five-year window— Economic certainty. Correct. The problem is, after that four- to five-year window, that's when it becomes challenging because now you have to pay all of your draft picks. So if there was a way for them to have maybe a Larry Bird rule in the NFL— Similar to the NBA, Paul, you could go over the cap to retain one player. That I could see them adopting. Lance, Outside of that, I think that's too much. I've been asking for that for several years as well, and nobody wants to listen. 
<laughs> but that, I think, would be able to still maintain the competitive balance. That's why I'm okay with that. I'm not okay with 10% off for all of your drafted players. Yeah, I've, I've yeah. often felt that you know, when you're talking about 50-plus players on a National Football League roster, uh, that I would have absolutely no problem with a NFL version of the Larry Bird rule, which would allow you to go over the salary cap to re-sign a star player. And in fact, because the NBA has so many more play or so fewer players on a roster than the NFL, I'd have no problem with giving every single team three exceptions instead of only one. Well, and also keep in mind, to your point, guys make a lot more money in the NBA mm-hmm. when you break it down, average annual salary, because once again, there's not nearly as many players on each roster. So all and, and of those of course, mathematics though, are taking That situation also means that each team is going to be spending a different amount of money, and it does make, again, it softens the cap is what it does. It softens oh, the it cap absolutely and allows does. for flexibility and, and some, some gray area in the cap. But to, to, the, to the readers or the uh, fans' point, it, it, you're trying to do something to allow your team – to maintain some consistency and continuity with some of its best players. And I'm all for that. I think that's part of what makes the league great. When you can have a a, a fan base root for a team, you know, in college, they know the guy's going to be gone in four years. You know, you, you want to be able to have teams where you, your favorite stars and your, your homegrown players and the guys who are the heart of your winning organization can find a way to stay. All right, let's try to squeeze in one more question before we wrap up. Tommy in California, he writes, quote, was a 16-season ticket holder with my dad, section 327, row 27, very nice, at Giant Stadium. He relocated to California, so here's his question. What would you guys consider to be a successful 2020 season for the Giants? Not just wins, but improvement areas. Example, he writes the secondary, defense, points against, offensive rushing yards, plus minus takeaways. And he says that he loves the show and he listens religiously. And we certainly appreciate that, Tommy. So thanks so much for your question. So how would we sum up a successful season for the Giants this year? And not so much wins, losses, but maybe specific statistical categories, what you want to see out of specific players as well. Well, you know, Lance, I think the the one thing that we could probably agree on, because I think all of the other things that we might come up with are going to be highly debatable and may not even make a lot of sense, but I think if week in and week out they are involved in one-score games in the fourth quarter, then that would tell you they are a better football team it means they're a more competitive football team. And if you can do that on a consistent basis, that is certainly a marked level of improvement. Now, at the same time, you can't take that literally because you could be in every game in the fourth quarter by one score and go 0-16 if course. you lose all 16. Yeah. So I want to be very careful as I say that because, you know, it boxes me into a corner. But I do think in concept – That's the kind of thing you're looking for. I think that's fair, and I don't disagree with your point. I guess I don't look at this season, and I've emphasized this a lot, as something that you look at the team result. And what I mean by that is I'm not going to focus so much on totals or record. 
I'm looking at this more through the individual lens, Paul. And I think that's how a lot of people need to evaluate this team. Since this team is so young and there's a lot of players who are only two to three years removed from the draft, I think the way to view this season as a successful campaign is, does Daniel Jones show progress? Does Saquon Barkley show progress? Does that young secondary, the individuals, are you seeing marked improvement week in and week out as opposed to a flash one week, then a drop off the following week, and then another flash? Meaning, are you seeing even performance? That's how I'm going to view this season in terms of whether or not it's successful. Because I could sit here and tell you, Paul, well, if they take the turnover differential and it goes from minus 17 to minus five, that means the Giants are improved. But here's the thing, as you well know, and I bring this up all the time, takeaways and giveaways, it's a very fluky statistic. You can control your own luck, as a lot of people point out, but it also can completely flip from one season to another. So just because the Giants improved their turnover differential in 2020, does that mean 2021 it's going to be the exact same thing? No, I can't guarantee you that. But I can guarantee you that if Daniel Jones's decision-making is improving, I feel good that he's going to continue to show that moving forward. If I see secondary players cover better and they're ball hawks, and they know where they need to be consistently, and there's not a lot of mental mistakes, I feel good about the trajectory moving forward. So that's how I'll view the Giants as having a successful season. Well, you know what's funny about what you just said? The characteristics of what I said before you said it actually match up very well with what you were asking for. To be perfectly honest, if you get what it is that you want, chances are those characteristics are going to be inherent in exactly what I said to you before. Well, you can argue if the individuals are performing consistently, then you're going to be in every game for the most part, right. as you were mentioning. Right. Yeah. I mean, so in and a you're way, going to be we've, competitive, kind of, we've kind of asked for the same thing, but in different words. Because to be honest with you, I think to me, although, again, now, ultimately we're looking at the same end game, but how do you get there? Now, you could talk about four or five individual players, and you mentioned some names. I disagree with that, to be honest. I think the Giants need incremental improvement in a number of areas. They need to show that that offensive line is better. They need to show that Daniel Jones is not going to turn the ball over as much. They need to show that uh, Evan Ingram can be healthy. They need to show that the secondary can mature and blend together. They need to show that they can have some semblance of at least an effective pass rush, if not get sacks, show that they can impact the quarterback. they got a bunch of areas Absolutely. that I think need need incremental improvement and to me that's the best way for this team to get better as opposed to two or three players that just have to you know have terrific seasons I think that would be the worst thing that could happen for this team well I could sit here and go through the whole roster I just named a few I'm not looking at it just two or three players Paul Okay. I am not in agreement there. No, right. we're talking about well, I misunderstood that entire, what you were asking for. No, no, no. I'm looking at that entire young core on defense and offense, and that includes offensive linemen. That includes running backs, wide receivers. You name it, Darius Slayton. There's another guy. I mean, I could sit here. We could have an entire show. I mean, there's no purpose of me naming the entire roster, right. but right. that's what I mean. The individuals all moving upwards. Well, and yes, and as a group, of course, it'll be reflected positively for the team, but... Here's the We're reason. singing the same song with a different beat, Lance. That's well, no, all. we are. We're, we're emphasizing different facets, but this is why I don't get too caught up, I guess, in what I'm saying in terms of specific categories or whether or not the team is competitive because 
not to go off on a tangent here, but Paul, 2015 and 16, okay? If we go back in the archives, 2016 was the last time the Giants made the playoffs. And they had a very productive season, and their defense was vastly improved because the Giants made splashes in free agency and it carried over. But if you remember, 2016 had a lot of close games, Paul. Okay, They weren't a dominant team. They weren't winning by 20 points every single game. Close games, they were gutting it out, they were winning. Well, if you go back to 2015, Paul, 2015 also had a lot of close games. They were a very competitive team in 2015. And Mm -hmm. we can sit here and debate, were they a deep team? That's for another day. The bottom line is they were competitive in 2015. They weren't winning those close games. So I guess my point is, you could be a competitive team, you could play close games. It doesn't mean that you're overall a very deep and good team. There's a distinct difference. Right, except that right now, if the Giants put a competitive team consistently on the field week in and week out, you consider that Joe Judge is in his first season as a head coach, and they've got so many young players at key positions, that would actually be a positive as opposed to what you're suggesting as either a negative or a neutral. Well, considering it's a new scheme, and they revamped everything, yeah, it would be certainly a very strong foundation if the coaches and the team had progress from start to finish. There's no doubt about it because that's at least something they could build off of. And there were changes, to your point, between 15 and 16. So we can't dismiss that in terms I mean, uh, of coaches you know, a, and everything. A team that's competitive in a bunch of games in 15 like the Giants were and lost a bunch of them also had a lot of a, a much older roster. They did? Much older roster. And that and that's that's when just being competitive in week in and week out is not necessarily a good thing because the, the the arrow isn't pointing up in that in that scenario. So that is going to wrap things up for us here on Friday's edition of Big Blue Kickoff Live. Appreciate everyone for tuning in and submitting your questions. We will be back up and running live next week. So Monday's program will be back to noon Eastern live, being able to take your phone calls. We had pre-recorded shows for just the duration of this week. We want to thank John Ledyard, who covers the Bucks for Pewter Report, once again for breaking down Tampa Bay and discussing what to expect from Tom Brady and company this upcoming season. Paul, enjoyed the conversation and look forward to doing it again next week. You got it, Lance. Thanks again for tuning in. Stay locked to Giants.com for all the latest. For Paul Dottino, I'm Lance Meadow. Enjoy the rest of your Friday. Enjoy the weekend. And we'll speak to you on Monday right here on Big Blue Kickoff Live.